Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I ask myself that sometimes. I think for me, like, I, I also want to make it clear is that this notion of like too late and, and sense of wonder, that's very personal. There's a lot of people who would argue that, you know, our space is far from that. It's only the beginning. And I, I also agree with that. I think it's more like on a personal level, the work that I would be doing, that's how I felt. And so I, I still do have that sense of wonder. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is a good friend of mine. He's a fellow podcaster. He's the voice behind Minds Behind Maps and his name is Maxim Lenemand. So normally when I publish a podcast episode, I want it to be about a very specific topic. So it's easy to describe. So you can look at it and say, yes, this is for me or no, no, thank you. I'll wait and try again next week. But this episode, this is a little bit different. This is a conversation with an aerospace mechanical engineer that moved away from mechanical engineering into software engineering and was attracted to, to geospatial and specifically to earth observation. So why might you want to listen to this? Well, if you're new to the industry, if you're new to geospatial, I think that there's a lot of really great insights here. And if you're not new to the industry, if you've been around for a while, it might be really helpful to understand what the next generation is, is thinking about, what attracted them to our industry, what brought them here. And perhaps once we understand that, maybe we can figure out what will keep them here. So there you go. There's a bunch of good reasons to listen to this podcast episode. But, but let's say you listen to this podcast all the way to the end. And the only thing you get out of it is that it's okay to ask questions. And it's okay to have an opinion. And that people like us, well, we come from all over. If that's what you get out of this episode, then maybe that's okay too. Hey Max, welcome to the podcast. This is awesome. Like I've, I've been wanting to record an episode with you for, for quite some time. You have become... A good friend of mine, we have these bi-weekly meetings where we talk about podcasting, we talk about geospatial, we talk about a bunch of other things. And you are a data scientist and you're involved in the, in the geospatial community in, in a bunch of other ways. All of that to say that I'm excited to have you on, I'm excited to talk to you. And today I'd, I'd like to start with a, a question that you often ask people on your podcast, and that is, how would you describe yourself? <laughs> yeah, first of all, thanks a lot for having me. This is really cool. Like, this is one of the first podcasts that I really started listening to when I was going through the the kind of geospatial journey as well. So this this feels great to to be on here. Funnily enough, I was actually wondering if someone would ever ask me that question. So I'm glad it's you. And I have to say, for someone who asks it all the time, I don't think I actually have a prepared answer. So yeah, let's just try to see where this goes. I describe myself as someone interested in interesting things. What I mean by that is. I like finding things that are interesting and challenging intellectually, but but not only. And and I think I thrive in trying to understand and learn from that. Being around people who are driven by what they do and and really enthusiastic about it, be it programming, computer science, which I've I've fallen in love with, which we we, we might talk about, but also music, for example, people who are really into music and and talk about it in a way that we don't hear often about or, or podcasting people who talk about having great conversations like like you do and i find myself navigating towards these things and then that's that's how i end up usually doing the stuff that i do it's it's finding someone who's doing something interesting and wanting to learn from that person and and absorb everything that person does and i think that describes a, a lot and explains a lot of things that that i do so you said you're a, a data scientist and, and you've fallen in love with, with data science. You've fallen in love with, with programming. 
Have you always been a data scientist? Did you come out of university and go straight into data scientist? What did that journey look like for you in data science? Yeah, the short answer is absolutely not. So I'm French and I studied in um, uh, engineering school. We have these schools that I think are, are a little bit unique in France. So you go there, it's two plus three years. And at the end, you get the official title that you're an engineer. And I went into aerospace mechanical engineering, so nothing to do with software. Mechanical engineering is basically the how do you design an engine? How do you design a plane so that it can go fly in the sky and doesn't explode and kill everybody in it? Stuff like that. How, how do you find which materials to use and things like that? And it's very physics-based. And I remember we had this moment where we kind of needed to decide where we wanted to go and like what speciality we wanted to take. And there was one which was like very hardware centric and the other one that was very software centric. And I remember being like, yeah, software over my dead body. I'm never going to do that. Things have changed since then, uh, of course. It's been gradually finding like why it, I, I find it interesting and, and finding something to, to fall in love with the process. And uh, yeah, it happened over time. Can you help the listeners understand that gap between aerospace engineering and geospatial? So you were involved in hardware. Did you move into the geospatial sort of arena industry, if you will, by looking at how we're capturing data, by building the hardware that's going to capture data? Or how did you get into, into geospatial? Yeah, that's a good question. So I was, uh, and I still am, like what people refer to a little bit like a, a space geek, like these people who are really into, into space and everything. At first, it was actually aviation. Like I was a huge aviation nerd, and I, I still am when I was in, in high school, I was fascination for World War II airplanes to maybe an unhealthy point. Um, and then aerospace, because basically a lot of it was driven by, I want to have an impact. And aviation felt like this incredible thing. Like you can, you can build planes, like it's just this thing. You look up in the sky and there's this thing like that's multiple tons that's just flying around. Like it's, it's amazing. And there's this thing where people talk about it with such like poetic words about aviation, about flying. And then that's very attractive to like a teenager. But then I realized that the actual work in the aviation industry is, to me, it felt boring. And I'm maybe going to piss off a few people there. But it's, um, it, it was not what I expected. It's a lot of huge companies like Airbus. And we're, we're, we're talking like tens or hundreds of thousands of people working on, on the same project. And it's incremental improvements. At least that's what I saw from it. And so I was like, okay. I'm too late in aviation. Let me go to the space industry, like rockets. And so I, I started going there and like discovering what hardware was like, what building hardware for the space industry was, was like. And so rockets and, and satellites, CubeSats. Uh, so these little satellites are standardized satellites. So until then, everything was like a one-off project that you had to start from, from scratch. And so there's this um, university project that came out and it's more standardized so you could reuse a lot of stuff and spacex is was starting to, to become really big like this is around 2016 like 2015 when i'm like in engineering school and spacex is starting to be really heard about and that's when i start realizing oh i missed the frontier again like there's still a lot going on but like to be really at the edge of, of what's really happening i'm like still too late and so i did this hackathon so it's a hackathon for, for those who don't know. It's this like thing where you have 24, 48 hours to solve a project. Like you come up with a bunch of friends or people and you work for like 24 hours straight 
over a weekend and you have to solve a problem. And I had done that like a couple of years before that specific one it was called Act in Space in, in France. That's sponsored by the French space agency, ESA, the, the European Space Agency. And the idea is just to get new ideas with, with stuff. And there was one project about Earth observation and AI. And out of all the projects, that's the one that sounded the most interesting to us. And so we were like, yeah, let's do that. And I like going on a stage and just like talking in front of people. It's, it's something I love doing. I find it very exciting. And so we just killed it. Like it, we did a great job at that. But like, honestly, we were talking out of our butts. Like we had no idea what we were talking about. Like, yeah, we could do this with satellite imagery and we could solve that problem and blah, 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 blah. And uh, the idea was amazing. We won that thing. The idea was amazing to us. And that's where I was like, okay, let's do it. Like, let's try to do that. And that's where I realized, oh, there's this thing that it seems like there's not that much going on in Earth observation. Like there's there's so much imagery and like, you know, there's so much thing that we could do from it. And mind you, this is like I had no idea what I was talking about at that point. But it just felt to me like, oh, this is the next like frontier thing that I could be in. And so that's where I started learning into it and eventually falling in love with with the process. Okay, so we've got the situation here where you you start off thinking aerospace engineering is for me. You realize along the way, oh, I'm too late to the party. The ship has sailed. You start looking in the space industry and think, space, yes, I I could do this instead. But again, you discover that you're too late to the party. So you, you bump into this project that has something to do with Earth observation data and AI, and you you see a bunch of possibilities, of options here. Having worked in the industry now for a few years, because that was a while ago you did that project, you stood on stage and didn't know what you're talking about and convinced a lot of people to come to, that, that you knew what you were doing. So that was a few years ago now. Having worked in the industry for some time, for a few years, and we'll get into more of your journey later on, do you still have that sense of wonder? Do you still have that sense of we are on the frontier here, that not everything has been done yet, that there's a bunch of, of opportunity here? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I ask myself that sometimes. I think for me, like I, I also want to make it clear is that this notion of like too late and, and sense of wonder, that's very personal. There's a lot of people who would argue that, you know, our space is far from that. It's only the beginning. And I, I also agree with that. I think it's more like on a personal level, the work that I would be doing, that's how I felt. And so I, I still do have that sense of wonder. I think it's it's a little bit different. When I was studying aerospace engineering, there were a lot of these moments where I'd look up to the sky in, in the night and there's the moon. And I just couldn't help but think like there's 12 people who've walked on that rock up there that's 300,000 kilometers from us. Like how amazing is that, that we've sent people walking on the moon and they all came back. Like I, I just, that's the sense of wonder that I had and I, that I wanted. That's why a lot of people go in the space industry. It's It's like, these big dreams, it's amazing. But now I, I see that and I have this sense of wonder on Earth observation that's really different. It's one more about impacting things down on Earth. What I love about it is that at the individual level, to me, I can work in a startup where it's like 30 people and we can have a real impact. And that's what I was missing a little bit in the more aerospace mechanical side. It's that it, it was much bigger teams to have an impact like that. And it was a different impact. And so what I like about it is that we're at the edge of this like very interesting technical problems about like computer science and machine learning and cloud computing. But we're also trying to solve very real problems down on earth, be it flooding, vegetation monitoring, like to cite some of the stuff I've worked on. But 
it feels a lot more tangible and real as well. And then that's where the wonder is for me that there's so much of these technical problems that haven't been solved yet that my like nerd brain can hatch on. And then all these problems like down on earth for communities and for people that we're trying to solve. And so that's kind of this sense of wonder. It's it's seeing the wealth of data. Sometimes I refer to being a geospatial data scientist, like working on, on satellite imagery as, as like a superpower. And one example I take is that if you know how to use satellite imagery, you could take something like free data, like like Sentinel or Landsat, these these free data sources. And from your bedroom, you could like find what's the best harvesting time for the whole country of Nigeria, like from your bedroom, like how amazing is that? The amount of power and information that you can gain from that, from your bedroom, like pretty much alone working on that is immense. And that's the wonder that I see. It's like the impact that you can have as an individual is, is leaps and bounds more to me, at least, than, than what I was seeing from where aerospace was going. I'm sure a lot of people had the same sort of feeling that, that you have now, that, again, that, that sense of wonder in terms of geospatial. In the early days of, of GIS, wow, we can map this data, you know, we can put it in different layers, we can do analysis on it and figure things out, all from, you know, my bedroom, from, from my office, you know. I can look at all of Canada, for example, and do analysis we never could have dreamed of, answer questions we didn't even know existed. But I, I think probably, in, in terms of GIS anyway, I think once that moved away from the, the early days and got into standardized procedures that needed to be performed in a, a certain organization and got broken down into standardized tasks, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people lost that sense of wonder and it became more of a job. Perhaps the same thing that you experienced in the aerospace engineering where, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, they're doing something amazing. They're pushing this huge piece of metal through the sky and moving people safely around the world is incredible. But when it gets broken down into standard operating procedures and you get further and further away from the bigger picture and can't be involved in that, in that value chain, if you will, I think people lost their sense of wonder. I'm curious, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's the case for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, and I think that's a very real thing. I was thinking about it uh, a little bit like ahead of this uh, interview. I think, for example, in aerospace, there's this nostalgia of the, the 60s of the space race. A lot of movies and series are done about like the Apollo program. So when we went on the moon and kind of how hacky all of that was and how it was just about getting the job done and at all costs and everything. And I, I think there's a lot of nostalgia to that moment compared to now where it's more standardized in, in some ways. And that's why people are more interested in, in things like SpaceX, because it's this hacky kind of thing where the process hasn't been found. And to go back to, to geospatial, that's why I maybe without really noticing, but I try to run away from everything that's branded GIS, because to me, that, that screams this like process that's been figured out already, and it's totally not what I want to do. And for me, it's, it's more about moving towards like the part where we haven't figured out the processes yet. And that's just because I think that's, that's what I like as well. It's, it's about figuring out new ways to do stuff. And I think it's more nowadays about like using the, the the satellite imagery more than the the geospatial queries that we could be doing it's about how do we leverage all these kinds of new data that that we're creating that are coming out from companies like like planets or isi that change the game like now there's this immense amount of satellite imagery we don't really know what to do with it just quite yet and we don't really have the tools either 
on the very technical side of like the data science and data engineering, we haven't really solved the problem of how do you handle that much data and answer a very simple question around the world, like how many cars are there on a parking, to, to use that age-old example that no one's actually really figured out yet. You, don't, you can't just like do a query like that and be like, okay, Google Maps, tell me how many cars are, are in these images. Like We're not just there just yet. And so for me, there's this kind of new frontier aspect that's still there. And I, I hope that if it starts changing, I'll also still be able to just, like I've done before, just move on to something else where that next frontier is. Because I think there, there always is this like frontier aspect somewhere. And it, again, it's this very personal thing. I'm sure people look at the way we're doing remote sensing now and they're like, oh yeah, it's all standardized. It's, it's not what it used to be like uh, 20 years ago or something. But I wasn't there 20 years ago. And for me, that's, that's what I'm finding there. And I'm trying to stay there and, and moving in whatever direction things go. So you know, maybe in five years, I'll be somewhere completely different and nothing to do with geospatial. Who knows? I think that's really smart, sort of leaving the, leaving the door open in the way you're doing, saying, I'm interested in this here and now, but this is not forever. Giving yourself that room to change, to develop, that is super clever. I wish I was that evolved when I was your age. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between hardware engineering and software engineering. So you seem to be driven by this, the, the promise of being on the frontier, being on the edge, being able to solve big problems, and not necessarily having a roadmap. Do you think there's more sort of room for, for that kind of innovation when we think about software, as opposed to when we think about hardware? That's a really good question. I think there's that in both, like this idea of innovation and change in, in both hardware and software. I've been wanting to to write down like what it's been like to go from hardware into software and like with fresh eyes, like without having gone through university through computer science, because things are very different, but they're also quite similar. And I think what I find very interesting in the software world now is just that feedback loop, that iteration process is so much faster because it's just like, oh, let me push a bunch of code and see how things change. There's this constant joke that there's a new JavaScript framework that comes out every two seconds. There's this iteration process feels a lot faster in software because I think the barrier to entry is a lot lower as well. Like all you really need is a laptop and an internet connection to be able to contribute to anything software and a lot of time to be able to, to ingest all of that. But the barrier to entry to be able to do hardware stuff is so much higher in terms of capital, so sort of like financial means, people all that stuff. And so it, I think it makes it a lot harder to, to iterate. 3D printing is, for example, a technology that's been hailed as something that, that allows to speed up that iteration process. Because instead of building a whole mold and casting iron or plastic to be able to try something out, now you can just like 3D print it in a few hours and, and try it out. But it's still like, I think, an order or two orders of magnitude slower than what you can do in, in software. And that's just very appealing to me that like, oh, from my laptop, I can be at the edge of like what's happening. Just look at what's happening in the machine learning world, like how quickly machine learning is evolving. The machine learning tools like TensorFlow or PyTorch or these libraries that help us build on top of, they, they evolve so quickly. I've been in this like for just a few years. I've seen it already change so much in a way that I haven't seen evolve as quickly in the hardware space. So in, in some ways, I guess you're in a kind of a pressurized situation. So you're, you're working for a startup at the moment. So I think you said there's something like 30 people where you work, and perhaps we can talk a little bit more about where you work later on. 
and you're working in an industry that's on the, the bleeding edge, that this frontier that we keep talking about. You talk about this relentless march of innovation in terms of software products. Is this exhausting? Is it ever overwhelming? That's a really good point. One, one thing I do want to mention as well is that I love hardware as well. And, and I want to mention there's a reason why things are slower as well. There's a lot of safety and security margins that are built in in, in hardware. Like if you build a, a plane, like you better make sure that thing never explodes. And comically, websites fail all the time. Like software just fails so much more often. So we can allow that iteration process to also happen a lot faster. But to get at, at your question, I think there is something like it, it does feel sometimes like there's this pressure to always keep up and this FOMO, like this fear of missing out on the latest new thing and, and the latest new framework or something. I think I've heard it in JavaScript on the web development side as, as like JavaScript fatigue or framework fatigue is like this thing where it just constantly changes. But I also think you don't need to always know that the latest new thing, like a lot of things have like work as well and, and are proven to work and you don't need the, the next big thing. You know, we were talking just before we started recording about, you know, what different software we use to record podcasts. And there might be a new one that comes out tomorrow, but that doesn't mean we're going to jump on it because we have our ways of doing that just work. And so there's this cost as well that comes with switching and taking a risk again with something that right now just works. And it's a little bit the same about that in software and finding the new tools. It's finding that trade-off between exploration and exploitation. So exploration is like trying out new things and exploitation is just knowing the things and using the things that you already know. And it's the same when you look out for new restaurants, like there's places you like to go eat and you just go there again. But maybe there's a new restaurant that comes out and you're going to try it out sometimes. But if you want to be sure, you just go back to the tools that you know. And so it's, it's finding that balance between Right now, you need to get something like get the job done. So you're just going to use the tools that you know have been stress tested. And that's why things like um, SQL databases, I forgot how old that is, but they're still around because there might be something better, but it gets the job done and it works. And finding that balance is, I think, something that also needs to be to be learned. When I was starting off, I was like constantly like, oh, my God, there's this new TensorFlow feature. Like, let me try to ingest it, all that stuff. And that takes a lot of time and effort as well. And so sometimes you, you dial it down a little bit. You create these filters as well for yourself, be it finding someone on Twitter who has a very high signal to noise ratio where like, if that person talks about this thing, maybe I should pay attention. And that means being okay with the fact that you're not going to be the very first person to hear about something, but you curate it a little bit more and then just finding that balance. I feel like that to me is, is what I'm constantly trying to, to figure out. Like, what should I pay attention to and maybe fiddle around with a little bit and see if it has that promise while I keep using the tools that I already know. I want to push back on something you said about hardware and software. So first of all, thank you very much for going into details around hardware. I think it's really important for people to understand that you know when it fails, it has immediate consequences. And, and there is a difference between the two in the terms of the way we build them, the, the standards that we have in place when we think about development and innovation in both fields. But earlier in the conversation, you mentioned something which was super interesting. And one of the things that really attracts me to geospatial is like, you can sit in your bedroom and calculate the, I don't know, the soil temperature for the whole world. And I think that this is the magical thing of, about software and, and data is that it, it has that scalability. But I think too that there, with scalability, 
comes a certain risk, right? So if we start making decisions off the software tools that we're building, the software products that we're building, there's a very real risk involved with that. And I would equal that to what we see in the hardware industry. We iterate really fast in software, but I've heard people use the term sort of move fast and break things. Not when they talk about hardware, but when we talk about software. Do you think that's going to have to change at some stage? That we can't go around breaking things at scale, where we can't sort of misinterpret data across a global scale and start making decisions based on that? Do you imagine a time where software has the same sort of rigor applied to it as perhaps what we see in the hardware industry? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think to maybe bring this like a, a bit of context as well, I, I think I'll always remember this, but I had a teacher who was this very renowned engineer and it was like the, the first year or second year of engineering school. And so we had courses on specifically mechanical engineering for aviation. And there was this thing where, you know, we were like 18 year olds and, and like super excited to, to, to build planes and whatever. And he told us, like, he really took the time to be like, like, you, you guys need to take this seriously. Like, you are the future generation of people who are going to be building planes. Like, I'm going to step on that plane. My, my son is going to step on that plane. I don't want it to blow up. I don't want people to die. And it was this thing where it's like, oh, like we're having very real consequences that have very real tragedies if, if something breaks. And of course, you know, it was not us right now that we're going to have an impact on that. But, but in the future, it was. And in software, I don't see that as much. And I, I, I remember being a little bit surprised when entering this field about like, oh, like testing is a joke in the way that regulations are, are sometimes so intense in aerospace in the automotive industry as well like safety is just taken as such a high standard and sometimes when you when when I when I see some of the software it's it's a bit comical to the point where we kind of trust it that it's not going to break too much and I hope that we can maybe learn a little bit from from each side and I I think there are some some pieces of software that already are if they break it's a, it's a huge tragedy as well and so that that already is starting to 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 come in and and has been there for a while. I think we also have maybe a bit of a bias towards hearing those like really cool stories of of tech companies who are building as fast as they can. But if you're building Instagram and you know your recommendation system doesn't go wrong, well, you know, nobody's going to really die. I mean, you can actually make a, an argument for that, but it's it's a different kind of mistake. You can see it in a very different way. So I think it really depends on on what we're working with. And I think it goes back to in, in the data science field to, to being able to validate the analysis that we're making, not just the code, but whatever comes out of it and making sure that it doesn't have dramatic consequences if, if we make the wrong prediction. And I think that's what the field is already starting to move towards, to be able to validate the results from that, however they were created, just so happens that it's with software. More than maybe testing the thing itself, it's like validating that whatever comes out of it makes sense and isn't harmful in ways that we haven't predicted before. So you talked about this idea of validating the results. Do you think that need for validation and that realization that, wow, this could have serious consequences now that we're doing this at a global scale, do you think that has sort of spawned this, this idea of data science where we want to, oh, we should have some science in this. People, we should have some scientists looking at this checking this instead of just data plumbers, if you will, people making sure the data moves from one spot to the other, but someone doing science at the other end, looking at the results and validating them. And I guess my next question, this is a double barrel one here. Sorry about that. 
how much science are you doing in your job? You, you call yourself a data science. How much of it is what you would refer to as science? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it, it's a very good one, mostly because right now uh, it's changing a little bit. But data science is still this thing where it's a lot of people like me who learned on it on, on the internet through a bunch of resources, a little bit different than, than the more standardized academic way. And so it's, it's a little bit strange to call these people like scientists when you haven't really gone through a rigorous process. And there's, I think there's a, a little bit of a rigor crisis in data science. This kind of term about data science, it, it started off as, as, yeah, maybe having that need to, to be able to validate those things. And it's, it's also this very tricky thing. It's, it's very easy to be fooled into thinking something is working or something is not working to find statistical outliers and, and be like, oh, this is working or this is not working by looking at those. And so there's this need to, to have this rigorous process about how do you create a benchmark that is going to test that it works on most cases, but it's also not dramatically wrong on, on some of the edge cases. Like, how do you build something like that? And it's taking all of that data and not seeing it for, for the problem that it is, but for the data that it is. To the point where sometimes we, we abstract the people a little bit too much but I, I, I do think it might have come out of, of, that, of that desire to be like, okay, now we're, we're doing things at such a big scale, we need to make sure things are working correctly. Early on, we talked about this, your, your desire to be on the frontier, to do things that are you know, not been done before, that are seen as innovative and that serve a purpose. I, I think that's what I get out of this conversation. Is it sound, you sound like the kind of person who's looking for a mission for to be involved in something greater than just creating a, a widget of some kind. And so you found your way into the geospatial world, you're working with AI, you're working with data, and you're working for a startup. And so I think one of the things startups do is they make big promises. They say, hey, we can do all of this stuff. And that's fair enough. I think there's a need to get people excited about the possibilities. I think that's really, really important. But you also recognize that this is hard. This is really hard. And there are consequences to our actions. Are you ever put in difficult situations? Like where you like, the need to sort of keep the promise that the company is making and the fact that this is really hard. As a data scientist, is this a, a difficult sort of balancing act for, for you at times? Uh, you, you can't see it, but I'm smiling because I think it's a really, really good question. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a tricky aspect to make that promise and, and be able to deliver on it. I think it gets demonized a little bit too much sometimes that people are like, oh, these startups, they make all these promises and they never deliver on it. I think it's, it's about incentives and understanding where that, that comes from, like where that need to make a promise comes from. Um, and, and I think you said it. It's, it's like you, you need that a little bit to attract people, get people's attention and be like, we're trying to do something. And I think there's, there's good ways and bad ways to do that. I think there's ways where sometimes as we're very deep in the technology, we're like, oh, I'm going to build like a, a post GIS database that's going to be able to retrieve all of that. Okay. But that, you know, that talks to nobody outside of that field. And so sometimes we try to turn that into, we're going to solve this problem. And it so happens that it uses a post GIS database in the background. And so it's, it becomes a little bit of a storytelling about what's the thing that you're trying to, to solve, but it's a really hard balancing act to be able to be like, okay, now what we meant by solving this is making this post-GIS database, but, but people don't know that. Maybe they imagine something else. And so I think we totally have a responsibility to make sure when, when we do those promises that we make sure what people understand out of it as well. That's how I'm trying to, to see things. It's a little bit hard sometimes to, to align those incentives, but I also think as, 
as technologists, as data scientists, we have a responsibility to be able to communicate with different stakeholders inside a company, outside of it, what is possible, what we can do, and what we cannot do. Making sure, not just saying, oh, I can't do that, but like making sure people actually understand that. I think it's very easy to to be like, oh, I understand what my my machine learning model can do, and I understand what it can't do. And so I just need to say it, and people just get it because they said yes. But I think it's really important to be able to understand that this is not simple and to, to communicate that in a way that can move the conversation forward and making sure that everybody's on the same line. So yeah, to really, I think like I'm just going in, in different places. But I, I do think that, yes, it's important and it's challenging as well. And it's, it's probably one of the hardest things about these types of, of jobs. It's, it's to kind of manage expectation and explain why these things are complicated, why they take time, but also what's, what they enable when they do work. So every time I talk with you, I'm, I'm completely blown away by the fact that here I am talking to this 25-year-old guy. And how long have you been in the industry? How long would you say that you've been working in geospatial? Two years. Two years. And here you have all these sort of opinions you know, on the industry, and you are not shy about voicing them on this podcast and in public. You participate heavily in Twitter. You have your own podcast where you talk to, to leaders in the geospatial world. What gives you the confidence to do this? What gives you the confidence to have this voice and to say, hey, well, I see it like this? Because I think the easiest thing in the world is to head down and just yes, sir, no, sir, and do my job and not have an opinion. Because when you have an opinion, you could be wrong. Where does your confidence come from? That's a really good question. I think it's, it's that last point that you mentioned is like, when you have an opinion, you could be wrong. I think about this a lot. It's about leaving that door to being wrong. This is, goes beyond geospatial, but I heard this analogy somewhere that I think through social media and things like that, like the way we see ideas has changed a little bit, but I like to see my opinions and my ideas as like this collection of cards that I own that are not me. My opinions are, are not me. They're just things that I hold on to for a little while. But then someone comes up with something and they're like, hey, have you considered this thing? Like, maybe you should also take a look at that. Like, you might have not seen the full picture. And then I'm like, I put that card down and I pick up another one because I've changed my mind. And I think it's, it's about being open to, to being wrong. Like I've been terribly wrong online sometimes and feel like a huge idiot. But I think it's, it's about being able to embrace that in a way and be like, okay, whatever, I was wrong. And to be able to, to be open to changing your mind. And I think it's, it's important as well to, to, to acknowledge that like opinions like have an impact as well. I, I, sometimes it's a little bit too easy to say like, oh, it's okay, I'll just change my mind. Like, no, you need to be able to, to still step up for, for what you're thinking and, and like beholden to, to your beliefs, even if, if they're wrong to be able to, yeah, no, I, I did used to think that, but I've changed my mind. I think sometimes online, it's a little bit too much of like someone finds a tweet that you put like 10 years ago and you're like, look at this guy. He said this 10 years ago. But yeah, maybe he's changed his mind now. And I think like being able to acknowledge that people can change over time and can change their opinions through so many different things, like their experience, the people they meet is, is just wonderful. And that's what I'm trying to do, actually. It's more about asking questions to people that I, that I admire and that I look up to. It's like, oh, wait, I, I see it like that. Why is it not the case? And, and I think sometimes we create this hierarchy of, of ideas about, oh, this person is this expert. You should just take it for what they're saying. I try to see it a little bit differently as like, oh, this person probably knows a lot more. So maybe I can go ask them that question. And I think a lot of the times 
things change because someone asks a naive question. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of and, and a huge believer of, of people asking simple questions like, why are we doing this? And not in a condescending manner. I think that's also very important to, that it comes with good intent and, and with positive intent to be very curious as to ask that really simple question, like a child asks sometimes, like, you know, sometimes children see something and they're like, hey, why, why is this like this? And you realize there's no good reason for it. And I think sometimes keeping that view on things about like, why have we been doing this over and over again like this? Sometimes people come up and they say, look, I don't know, but we need to get the job done now. And this is how we're doing it. So we're going to need to do it. And being able to say like, okay, I, I get it. Let's just do it like that and see if we can change it down the line. And I think also like one thing I, I really want to emphasize is I've been extremely lucky to be around people who don't get annoyed whenever I ask those questions. And I think finding people like that who can take the time to answer those questions is immensely valuable. So I, I don't see it as as necessarily having the the confidence, like even when you pointed out like that, I, I realized to myself, oh, maybe I'm doing this too much. Maybe I shouldn't be like that. Maybe I should be less. Maybe I should dial it down. But I think it's just really wanting to know, like finding someone on Twitter is amazing for that. Like you can ask someone a question and be like, hey, I'd like to understand why it's why it's like this. And when when you come up as someone who's interested, who's intrigued and who's truly curious about something, I think it people want to, answer you. And, and I've now it's kind of starting to flip the other side where people are coming to me asking me questions. And you can spot the people who are like, oh, this is like a work assignment. They were told to go talk to an engineer or something and people who are truly interested in it. And you just want to spend more time with those people. And I think that is completely independent on how much knowledge you have. Being able to understand someone's point of view doesn't require specific knowledge or expertise. Like, if they think something, there's a valid reason why they think it. And, and I think sometimes we're very dismissive of people who, who don't know, especially online, like this, taking this conversation a bit differently. But I really embrace when, when someone new comes in a company, for example, I, I really try to be like, okay, you have fresh eyes on this. Please let me know what you think about it. What do you think doesn't make sense? And, and let me know. Let's take the time to go over like, Take a look at this code base. Do you think it solves the problem that we're supposed to be solving? Because we get so deep into the tunnel that it's really nice to have someone's point of view from a complete outsider's point of view. And that's why I love talking with students and with interns and, and people like that who have a completely different perspective. Because I remember coming in and I didn't know much. And I think back then I had some interesting points of view because I was so far out from the world I was in. And I do think sometimes we, we try to shut down students or interns or people who are starting in their career because they don't know enough or, or they should listen to that person. And I think everybody can get something out of that. And I'm not saying at all, you know, don't listen to experts or whatever. They, they're experts for a reason and you should take in what you can from them. But I think there's this conversation to be had. And I, I think I'm also just sometimes a little bit naive or, or um, not self-conscious enough to, to just be like, hey, I have this question, why not? And then ask it. And yeah, I, I think that deep down, it just comes from wanting to know why. And then that's, I think one of my favorite questions is, is asking why, like, why is this like this? Why is that like that? Understanding incentives and things like that is something that I find intellectually really interesting. So yeah, there you go. It's a, maybe a bit of a long-winded answer, but here you go. 
Okay, so I've got a couple of things there. Firstly, my I really hope that you don't stop asking questions. I really hope that you don't stop participating in the community in the way that you've been doing up until now. I, for one, really, really appreciate it. We've been talking about questions and opinions, and this really comes to light. Like some of your ideas here really come to light in your podcast, Minds Behind Maps. So you sit down, having only been involved in the geospatial industry for a couple of years with leaders in the geospatial in- industry, and ask them a, a bunch of questions. It's really stimulating and interesting conversation. I'm wondering if you have changed your opinion since having some of those conversations. Is there anything that's happened to you in the course of producing this podcast with these leaders in our industry that's made you change your mind about something? Oh, that's a very good question. I think there's this, more than changing in my, my mind, that this realization that some of these people ended up where they are because of circumstances a lot of the time, and they're doing the best that they can with, with what they have. I think sometimes we look at, I don't know, it's the CEO of a company or the head of a university, and they're like, wow, this is like some committee sat down and took like the entire population of the world and found out who's the best person for that job and put them there. And, and that's not the case. A lot of the times they are very good at what they're doing. But I think realizing that a lot of people are where they are because of so many different aspects of their life. Maybe they were, you know, they broke up with someone at some point and and that meant that they changed cities and they had to change jobs or whatever and and things like that happened. So more than necessarily changing my mind, it's it's having that realization that a lot of people have a story, have a, a background. They're where they are because of a bunch of reasons and their career is just one aspect of that, which is great because that's what I wanted to, to do when I started this podcast is answer those questions like, why, why is that person there? Not, not in a bad way, as in like, why is that person there? But like, really asking that, like, why is it that person? Like, how did they end up to where they are? And, and hearing those stories that a little bit like I'm, I'm seeing right now, but like, how did I end up to where I am? Because I also found that nobody really had, or maybe someone had asked them, but I, I didn't find those conversations. So I wanted to have them. And I'm very happy because, yeah, that's, I think, what I'm taking away from it. And again, I don't really know if it's, if it's it, it, it might actually be changing my mind on, on how people get there and how people got there and having more empathy for the people behind the maps, to, to put it like that. I think this is a brilliant realization. I've had something similar happen to me during the course of my conversations with different people. And sometimes I feel like you, you see a leader, someone who's doing something, and it's occurred to me that they're not necessarily the absolute best person on the planet to be doing that. They're simply someone who saw something that was broken and said, this is broken, I, I'm going to fix it. And I think that's, that's a very different kind of leadership. That's the kind of leadership that doesn't get celebrated nearly enough. And I think what I see you doing with your podcast is like, hey, I couldn't find that. I'm looking for that. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it. Are you the best podcast in the world? Am I? No, no. We, we're just people that are making things because we want them to exist. And I think in that way, again, that, that sort of style of leadership, I think is absolutely fantastic where people just step up and say, this is broken. This doesn't exist. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to do this and see what happens. I, I absolutely applaud you for starting a podcast. Can I just say, like, I want to really thank you for like the amazing support that you've given me pretty much since day one. As you said, like, I, I really consider you as a friend now. And I, I want to take that little moment to just thank you for that, because you've given me a lot as well. And just the support as well. That's what's amazing is about 
taking that leap of faith and being like, all right, I'm going to start this thing, put it online, like on the internet for everybody to, to see and be able to critique. And having someone like you who's further in that journey to, to be able to say like, hey, what you're doing is great without like saying, you know, you should, you should do it like this. This is how you do it or whatever. It's, it's about just you do you. And, and I, I'm very thankful for that. So I just wanted to take a moment to also say that. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. I had a conversation a wee while ago with Todd Barr. We were talking about mentorship and we were talking about leadership. And it occurred to me during that conversation that Todd was getting just as much out of the, the mentorship process that the, the, the mentee was getting. So Todd has been in the industry for, for some time, definitely a leader in many aspects. And when they are working as a mentor, they're getting just as much back. And it's fantastic. When we started these bi-weekly meetings together, my ego was such that I was like, oh, great. I would like to be a teacher. I would like to, you know, share my knowledge. During our conversations, I never feel like a teacher and I never feel like a student. There's this, there's this wonderful thing that happens where I think that I'm probably getting a significantly better deal out of it than what you are. And I have the feeling that you feel the same way. And I would encourage anyone out there that's listening to this that thinks that they might have something to give or might want to sort of start one of these bi-weekly meetings or a mentorship process with, with somebody else in the industry to do it. It is so incredibly worthwhile, and I get so much out of our calls. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. When I had Joe Morrison on the podcast, he said something that stuck with me. Like he said many things that stuck with me, but about the process of like creating something and, and having other people interact with is, is like bringing value to those people. And I think maybe what we've found is just something where we, we bring each other value, but it's different. And I think in mentorship, you can get value out of the people that you're mentoring or, or teaching because, to, to me at least, it's because of their different viewpoint. It's, it's back to what I was saying earlier about, oh, this person is seeing this with such different eyes than I am that's been in this for a bit longer that this fresh perspective is invaluable because I can never get that back. And, and so I think sometimes people feel like, oh, I have nothing to, to bring to give. This person knows so much. And, and I think it's about Finding that thing as well, understanding what people what people want, and and being able to strike that deal where you think you've gotten a better deal out of it than the other person. Yeah, when you're talking about people not thinking that they've got anything to give or anything of value, how could I how could I provide value to another person? I think people miss or completely underestimate the value of seeing somebody else. I, I see you. I see where you're going. I see the thing that you're doing, and listening to them. So I often think the easiest thing in the world is to have a conversation with someone you know nothing about because it's all open, right? You can just say, who are you? And start there. It's so easy to do that. It's so easy. This is a really generous act. This is saying, I, I see you. I'm interested in you. I want to hear from you. And that in itself is incredibly valuable. And I think people underestimate that, that grossly. Yeah, if, if, I can, if I can add, I think one of the reasons why I started my podcast as well is, is because I wanted to get better at, at listening exactly what you mean by that. I think there's so much value in, in being able to uh, ask a question and listen to what people are, are answer to that. And, and I'm very thankful because that's what's happening right now to, to, to me. Like you're asking these, these questions and, and leaving me room to answer them. And that's why I think I'm biased towards these longer form stuff. But I, I also think there's really value in, in everyday life. Like one of the most valuable things I've done in my life, I think, is couch surfing and, and hitchhiking. So to, to explain what that is, like hitchhiking, I think people are aware, it's like you just like hitch a, a car and go somewhere. And couch surfing is this kind of weird thing where 
it's weird in that it works. It's this thing where people just sign up there and, and you can host someone in your house for a few days for free. And you can get hosted in other people's place homes for free for a while. And I was kind of broke as a student and I still wanted to travel. So I did a lot of that. And I ended up in people's houses that I didn't know and people whose ideas I, I think I would have never taken, taken the time to listen to in any other context or if I saw them on Twitter. But because you're at their place and you have nothing else to do, you just talk and listen to them for a long time and you meet people from around the world. And I think there's value in, in just that and doing that with people you know nothing about and having a conversation, like asking the question about like, and even pe mostly people you disagree with, I think it's even better. And, and it's asking them like, why do they think that? And bringing your point of view and saying like, well, you know, I, I don't agree with this because of that. What do you think about that? And I think it goes down again to, to this positive intent about being curious about why does someone think that and trying to put yourself in their shoes and, and understanding why does this person think this thing that I think is completely wrong and, and trying to understand. And, and that's where you can open yourself up to, to changing your mind. So I'm very thankful that there are people like you who, who are very good at that, at asking those questions and letting people answer them and, and take the time to, to listen to them. Because I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful skill to have and, and one that is not praised enough. We have come a long way in this conversation, Max. We, we really have. I had a feeling this was going to happen with you, and, and I'm grateful that it did. I want to round off things here, though. I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I want to say that I really appreciate the way you show up in the world, where you are online. I'm grateful that you started your podcast, and I, I look forward to following along the journey. So I hope that we can hold on to our bi-weekly meetings, because if we don't, I, I feel like I'm going to miss out on something. So I really hope we can do that. But before I let you go, where can the listeners go if they want to listen to your amazing podcast, if they want to reach out to you, if they want to continue this conversation? Yeah. So I, I think in the spirit of this conversation, like feel free to reach out. There's probably a lot of things that can come out of, of that. And I'm, I'm very curious to know what people think as well. And, and I think if anything, we're, we're showing here that that's, that's what we want as well as to, to have conversations with people. So to answer that question, I think the easiest is just on, on Twitter. To find me there. I probably spend too much time there. And then for the podcast, as Daniel mentioned, it's called Minds Behind Maps. And so like anywhere that you can uh, listen to podcasts, you, you can probably find it there. Thanks again, Max. Really appreciate your time. Thank you to you. I really appreciate you listening to me and, and giving me a, a little stage here to, to be able to have this nice conversation with you. And I definitely look forward to our biweekly uh, meetings every time. So I, I don't have any plans on stopping. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Max. I'll put some links in the show notes to the places that you can connect with him and of course to check out his brilliant podcast, Minds Behind Maps. That's it for me. That's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. I'll be back again next week. I hope that you'll take the time to join me. Until then, you're more than welcome to reach out to me on social media. You can find me at Mapscaping on Twitter and just search for Mapscaping, host of Mapscaping Podcast, something like that on, on LinkedIn. Those are the two channels I am most active and I would, I would love to hear from you. So please take the time to reach out. Okay, that's it for me. We'll talk again next week. Bye.